Brian McClanahan Show, episode 277. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. And, of course, I have eight courses available for purchase. It's a great way to support the show and get something good for it. And, of course, if you're on my email list, which is where you give me that email address, you're going to get some deals. If you register for McClanahan Academy, you'll get better deals. So it's a win-win situation. Uh, Get that email uh, over to McClanahan Academy. Get it to brianmcclanahan.com. You're going to get deals on all those great courses. Also, you can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also order a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. It's a great way to do it. Painless almost. You just pay for it. I send you the thing in the mail, stick it on the books. Great way to have my autograph on one of my books. And, of course, if you click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, you can get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff to make great Christmas gifts. Um, so if you're listening to this before Christmas, not a lot of time left, by the way. I mean, we've only got to about a week before. So, uh, But you can get those McClanahan Academy gifts. I mean, that's a great gift. There's no shipping, no, nothing required. You just buy it. You got it. Put it in a email. Say, hey, I got this for you. Stick it in a stocking. Great way to do it. And, of course, you support the show and get something awesome for it. You can also support the show by going to LearnTrueHistory.com, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Great website as well. So you've got a lot of ways to support the show. And, uh, again, share it around on social media. Like it wherever it is shared. Uh, Leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Go to Anchor.fm. You can... Support the show there. You can leave me voice messages. And so a lot of great ways to interact with the show as well. So I do appreciate all your support and um, everything you do to help spread the message of Think Locally, Act Locally. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is Paul Volcker. Now, Paul Volcker died uh, this week. And um, a lot of people don't know who Paul Volcker is. In fact, I think the headline, Volcker dies, would have not even registered on For most Americans, who the heck is Paul Volcker? But if you know anything about economics, particularly in the last 40 years, you know that Paul Volcker has been or was responsible for saving the United States from the stagflation of the 1970s. And um, he was uh, chairman of of the Fed. Now, the Fed is a problem in and of itself. And Volcker is not, I mean, he's not a libertarian. He's not a conservative. He's... Not a traditionalist. I mean, Volcker does believe in sound money, and that's because he listened to the Austrians on what was causing the problems of stagflation in the 1970s. He was certainly 
interested on trying to salvage the economy, which was, frankly, in the tank in the 70s. So what I want to do in this particular episode of the show is talk about the 1970s, how Volcker responded to the problems of the 1970s, and I'll also read a piece that was published in Yahoo News about the current financial mess of the United States and how there's similarities, but there's also problems in saying, well, we need another Volcker to come in and just save things. One of that, one of the reasons is because the general government has created such a large bubble in the education sector that I'm not sure if a Volcker-like response would do anything. In fact, it might exacerbate the problems. So we're in a real pickle now in the United States when it comes to the economy and debt. And this is one of the great issues of the 1970s as well, but it was it was not as bad then. And so you could have a response from a Paul Volcker. Now, Paul Volcker has been very vocal in his criticism of Donald Trump, and correctly and rightly so, because Trump has gone on record saying the Fed needs to drop interest rates. I mean, they're talking about negative interest rates. And Volcker is saying, this is a disaster. Trump wants to do it, of course, because when you lower interest rates, people spend more money, they borrow more money, and for a time, while you're president, that makes the economy look great. Volcker is looking at things, or was looking at things, long term. What is this going to do to the economy long term? How is this going to affect the United States economy 10 years from now? And he was sounding the alarm. This is a disaster. He's also concerned about Trump's undermining of institutions. I mean, he's worried about the perception of power and democracy and other things in America. That's just nonsense, okay, because all of that has already been undermined anyways. But the issue of the economy certainly is something that could really turn the United States in one direction or another. Um, we've seen this throughout history. When an economy tanks, that's when you have totalitarians move in because they promise success. And for a time, because of heavy-handed policies, they get what appears to be success at the loss of liberty. And uh, I think we would see the exact same thing in the United States. The United States is not immune to this, particularly in an age when Americans are so lost that they'll turn to fascism or communism. I mean, this is what you have with the alt-right. They're turning to fascism because they don't, they don't understand the American tradition. Or with the radical left, they're turning to communism or socialism because they don't understand the American tradition. And so when we've lost our anchor because of cultural Marxism, because of the assault on American tradition... When we've lost that anchor, all you're going to have is ideology to replace it. And ideology is dangerous. But let's talk about the 1970s for a few minutes and what was going on in the 70s and why we had the 70s. So if you look at the United States and the Nixon administration, and that's when you really have to begin this looking at this process. Actually, you have to go to the Johnson administration and what was happening in the Johnson administration. Johnson's plan, his great society, was coupled with American involvement in the Vietnam War. And when Johnson became president, when he assumed the office after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Johnson was very interested in spending a lot of money. So we ramped up our involvement in Vietnam, which was very expensive. And at the same time, Johnson outlines his great society, which was also 
very expensive. In fact, this is why it was called guns and butter. And I talk about this in my nine presidents who screwed up America. So we have this double-barreled assault on the American economy. And when I say it's an assault on the American economy, it's an assault on the... I mean, people will say, oh, no, no, all this money is going to the economy. That's going to help the economy. Well, this is the Keynesianism that's actually disastrous for an economy long-term. Because what the general government had to do to make this money is either print it or borrow it, or both. And this is exactly what they did. They started borrowing tremendous sums of money. Now, the problem with that is that in the 1960s, when this is going on, the United States was still anchored to a precious metal standard. Now, it wasn't a gold standard, but it was a, it was a bimetallism standard. We still were using silver, for example, in our quarters. Um, and we still had our currency backed by precious metal. We still had, we had, still had gold certificates and silver certificates. And so you could do this uh, if you did not have excessive federal spending because the currency was still sound. When Johnson proposes his great society and when we start spending tremendous sums of money on the Vietnam War, the federal deficit exploded. The United States sovereign debt exploded because they had to borrow money to pay for all this stuff. And they couldn't anchor our currency with precious metals anymore. It was causing a currency crisis. So Johnson's doesn't run for re-election in 1968. Richard Nixon wins, and immediately after taking office, he's confronted with this massive problem. What do we do? How do we solve this currency problem in the United States? So the response was essentially to pull the United States off a precious metal standard, you could no longer get gold or silver certificates. Pull it off a precious metal standard and make the dollar gold. Because the idea was, and this is an agreement among major economic powers, the United States would not destroy its currency. <laughs> right? So the, the dollar would become the reserve currency of the world. Instead of gold, people would hold dollars. The dollar would act as gold. Now, the problem with that is you can't, <laughs> the dollar can't act as gold because there's an unlimited supply of it. The agreement was, of course, we wouldn't inflate our currency so bad that it would cause problems for the world. So you get to the 1970s, though, and because we remove the precious metal anchor to the dollar, inflation goes through the roof. It was going to because the United States starts inflating. Now, other countries have started inflating at the same time. It's not the, like the United States was the only country doing this. It wasn't. It wasn't the only central banking system inflating. In fact, right now, in for the last 20 years or so, the dollar has maintained its strength because other sovereign entities are inflating their currency at a faster rate than the United States is doing. Now, some of that is changing. And with the amount of debt that we have in the U.S., that debt load is going to create problems. And so this is where I'll get into the second half of this podcast, and I'll talk about that. So when the inflation crisis begins, and Nixon, is, Nixon resigns, and you have Gerald Ford come into power, assume the office of the presidency, inflation is through the roof. In fact, we have the energy crisis in the 1970s. This really begins during the Nixon administration and the Ford administration. Carter is, of course, blamed for all of this. 
but we have an energy problem. We've got an inflationary crisis. And so Gerald Ford actually ran on a campaign slogan of win, W-I-N, whip inflation now. And the idea was to cut spending and try to curtail the problems of inflation. Now, of course, the general government never did this. In fact, when Richard Nixon was in power, the Congress ensured that you would never have a situation again where um, the United States could really cut spending because they adopted uh, a baseline budgeting stance. And, of course, that was eventually codified to where a cut is really not a cut. It's just a cut in the growth of spending. So this is what's going on in the 1970s. So Gerald Ford, of course, is defeated in 1976 by Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter comes in, and eventually he appoints Paul Volcker as chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, we can talk about how problematic the Federal Reserve is, ultimately long-term for the United States. It is a central banking system. And central banking systems, because of fractional reserve banking, are a disaster. Uh, but Volcker listens to the Austrians. He listens to Ron Paul, for example, and Volcker jacks up interest rates. The idea was to rein in the amount of cash on the open market because when you jack up interest rates, people are going to start investing. They're going to start saving money because they're going to make money by saving money. But you pull this money out of the private sector, or, or, or not out of the private sector, still in private hands, but you get it out of circulation, in other words. It's being put into banks. It's not necessarily deflation, but you're creating a climate of that. And so uh, when these interest rates go up, of course, that's going to hurt debtors. And it did. I mean, look, mortgage mortgages in the late 1970s, you couldn't get a mortgage for under about 12 to 15% interest. And this is why when you look at what's going on in the American housing market, and, you, and people that go out, I mean, I live in a house that was built in 1970. And it's a fairly, uh, I mean, for the time, it was considered to be a large house. Now, this house today would not be a large house at all. But in 1970, it was a, it was a pretty big, big house. Uh, but if you look at the houses that were built from the 50s through the 70s, they're smaller. You don't have the same footprint that you would for houses built today. I mean, you're building, you're seeing monsters built today for, I mean, pennies on the dollar in reality. And we know that housing is expensive, quote unquote. But if you go, I mean, outside of California, where you're going to pay, you know, $4 million for 800 square feet, if you go to real America, you can get a fairly large house for, I mean, compared to what you would have gotten in the 1950s, if you're comparing apples and apples. I mean, a standard middle class home, three bedroom, two bath house, uh, it's going to be substantially larger than it was in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. In fact, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you might have had a three-bedroom, one-bath house. No, no ensuite for the master. I mean, this because people couldn't afford very much because interest rates were high, particularly in the late 70s, and you could afford less of a house. So people didn't borrow that kind of money. So this hurts debtors, of course. It's saving the economy, though. Inflation goes down. Now, the caveat to that is that the United States government had to be more responsible with spending money. It couldn't spend the kind of money that it was before because um, borrowing became much more expensive for the general government. So it couldn't spend the kind of money that it, it, was, it wanted to spend. So there was actually some discussion about spending cuts. In fact, in the first Reagan administration, 
there was one time spending cuts. But all that, of course, goes away by the time we get to the mid-80s and then into the 90s. And we see, and then, of course, in the 90s, during the Clinton administration, we did have a balanced budget. We did have some spending restrictions. There was, but by the 2000s, all this is gone. We've, we've adopted a complete Keynesian approach to the, to the economy. And this idea of Paul Volcker jacking up interest rates and sound money goes by the wayside. And this is why Volcker has been very critical of Donald Trump for saying we need to keep interest rates low because the Fed was trying to raise interest rates to put the brakes on inflation because they understood inflation was a problem. But the other problem in this, the, the side of that, of course, again, is government spending. So you have to have a government that's interested in reigning in spending because we don't have the revenue to spend the amount of money that we have. And so Volcker's attack on the Trump administration should also have been on the Congress for spending too much money. He didn't do that. And all of the Democrat Santa Claus proponents out there running around saying we're going to give this, this, and this would bloat the federal budget even more. And so you can't have raising interest rates could be a disaster, particularly in a country in the United States, which is so invested in debt now. And that's what I'm going to talk about on the second half of this podcast. So I'm going to take a break for a second. I'm going to see you on the second half, and we'll discuss that there. I'll see you in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum. That's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to the present. You've got enough material. You've got lesson plans. You've got uh, tests. You've got reading material. You've got reading seminars. You've got 36 weeks. If you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about Paul Volcker, the economy of the 1970s, and I said we're going to draw some comparisons between the 1970s and today. It's very hard to do because the 70s and the now moving into the 2020s and, of course, the 20-teens 
we've seen a little different economic situation, and that's because of the runaway spending of the general government and the runaway debt of the general government. And, and when you look at the amount of debt, the debt load of the United States in the 70s and 80s pales in comparison to what we're talking about now. And a lot of that has to do with the bubble that's been created in education. And of course, because of the Fed, because of easy lending policies, um, we have a very dangerous and volatile situation with American consumer spending. But not just that, when you look at what's happened with education, for example, um, and you look at uh, the cost of education, why is education skyrocketing? Why is the cost of education skyrocketing in the United States? Um, and it's skyrocketing in the United States because we have a general government that's fully invested in education. Now, you might think, well, I mean, how is that, how is that a problem? Well, because they're creating price floors. When Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders run around and say we're going to have free college, we already have free college for a substantial portion of the population. And this piece I'm going to read in Yahoo Finance gets into that. Well, not really that in a way, but it talks about the debt. We have substantial, uh, you already have a large percentage of the population. You get free college. You have your Pell Grants, which if you want to go get a two-year degree in particular and become a nurse, which you only need two years to do, or go into a trade, which you only need two years to do, you can go to college for free if you're under a certain income. And a lot of Americans are still under that certain income. So you go for free. Or if you're on VA, you go for free. And we have a large percentage of the population that was in the military, so they get VA. They go free of charge. They have money they can use. Now, there's a certain percent of the population that's not, but then you have all the endowments and other things for these universities, and they give a lot of scholarships. I mean, I know, for example, in my home state, uh, some of the regional colleges will essentially let you go free of charge if you have a certain academic record. I mean, they'll, they'll basically pay for you to go there. They want students, so they're giving away money. Troy University, University of South Alabama, they give huge scholarships for students. And then, of course, the parents of the student have to pick up the rest, but it's not a lot. And if you're under a certain income again, you can get Pell to pay for all that. So a lot of American students can go to college free of charge. They can't go to graduate school free of charge. And this is also an issue where you're seeing debt because students are realizing that with all these people going to college, the only way to get ahead with a college degree is to get an advanced degree, whether it's a master's degree or a PhD. And even that, your, your job prospects for those areas are very limited in some fields. So we've got this debt crisis in America. And I, I want to I talk about this because, you know, Warren and Sanders have talked about canceling student loan debt. Warren, to a certain amount, Bernie Sanders just canceled it all. And then they want to have free college. We already have free college. So this piece is entitled, A 5,000-Year-Old Plan to Erase Debts is Now a Hot Topic in America. Begins in ancient Babylon, a newly enthroned king would declare a jubilee, wiping out the population's debts. In modern America, a faint echo of that idea, call it jubilee light, is catching on. 
Support for write-offs has been driven by Democratic presidential candidates. Elizabeth Warren said she'd cancel most of the $1.6 trillion in U.S. student loans. Bernie Sanders would go further, erasing the whole lot, as well as $81 billion in medical debt. But it's coming from other directions, too. In October, one of the Trump administration's senior student loan officials resigned, calling the wholesale write-offs, calling for wholesale write-offs and describing the American way of paying for education as nuts. Real estate firm Zillow cites medical and college liabilities as major hurdles for would-be renters and home buyers. Moody's Investor Service listed the headwinds from student debt, less consumption and investment, more inequality, and said forgiveness would boost the economy like a tax cut. Well, this is probably true. If student if people didn't have the amount of debt they had, well, sure, they'd have more cash. They could actually go in and get other debt, like a house. I mean, it would be a different kind of debt. If they didn't have credit card debt or student loan debt, they would just get a car or they would get a house and they'd have debt. The problem is debt. I mean, we're missing the elephant in the room. It's all debt. While the current debate centers on college costs, long-run numbers show how debt is spread throughout the economy. The U.S. relies on consumer spending for growth, but it hasn't been delivering significantly higher wages. Household borrowing has filled the gap, with low interest rates making it affordable. Here we go back to Volcker. You see, if the Fed was to jack rates, what would happen is people would be in real trouble because they borrow so much money. We are floating our economy on debt. This is where someone like Dave Ramsey is very important. I mean, because he tries to counsel people to stay out of debt. Only get the debt you need, and if you don't need it, don't get it. And he talks about essentially house, even cars. He says, don't get a car loan. Go out and buy a you know, $1,000 car, you know, Dave Ramsey mobile, and drive it around. Uh, because that will that will uh, help you have financial flexibility and freedom. If you have a pay cut, if you lose a job, you're not in dire straits. Debt creates very hard situations for Americans. So Volcker's response of jacking up interest rates, I mean, this would really be disastrous for the economy now, which is why you probably can't do it. I mean, here we are. So it's at this point, again, here we are, 2019, ready to go to 2020. And can we do a 1970s, 77, 78, 79 style uh, Paul Volcker response to the inflation, the, the what could be a massive inflation problem? Or would it take write-offs? I mean, this, these, are the, these are the choices that we have. Even Donald Trump in 2016, when he was campaigning, said we might have to give people a haircut. He was recognizing that, well, uh, repudiating some debt might be the only option when we get to, I mean, now people are panicked over this, but that might be the only option. So we're just not going to pay it. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's uh, we're, we're in this type of situation. What do we do? Um, because central banking policies have made this credit. It's the elephant in the room. The, the Fed has driven this. It's debt. And as I said earlier in the first half of this podcast, and that's not unique to America, steadily growing debts of one kind or another are weighing on economies all over the world. The idea that debt can grow faster than the ability to repay until it unbalances a society was well understood thousands of years ago, according to Michael Hudson, an economist and historian. Last year, Hudson published and forgive them from their debts. A study of the ancient Near East where the tradition known as a jubilee, 
has its roots. He describes how the practice spread through civilizations, including Sumer and Babylon, and came to play an important role in the Bible and Jewish law. Rulers weren't motivated by charity, Hudson said. They were being pragmatic, trying to make sure that citizens could meet their own needs and contribute to public projects instead of just laboring to pay creditors. And it worked, he says. Quote, societies that canceled their debts enjoyed stable growth for thousands of years. Forgiveness was good for the economy, would be a modern way of putting it. In October paper, Moody's examined how that might apply if America writes off its student debts. So here we have a situation. If we, if we wrote it off, now people would say, oh my gosh. This would, of course, be on the backs of the taxpayers. So the, the article continues, and I'm, I'm not advocating this. It's just interesting how this is being discussed now because the Austrians were right in the 70s, but the government doesn't listen. Of course, it listened to Keynesian economics. So we spent all this money. We've lowered interest rates to a point where people are borrowing money like crazy, which is creating a bubble all over the place. And that bubble will burst, and then what do you do? So if you want to stop it, you're either going to have to raise interest rates to stop inflation, or you're going to have to, and I mean, look, our spending power reduce, is reduced every year, or you're going to have to do something with debt. So the piece continues, there will be a modest increase in household spending and investment and eventually higher rates of homeownership and business formation, it said. Buying up student loans would... Increase the government's own debt, but only marginally, since it already owns three-quarters of them. This is something people don't realize. When I said there's already free college, the government is already paying for college for just about everybody in America. Whether it's from a Pell Grant, which is being paid out of time, I mean, just out of the Treasury, or through student loans, which are subsidized by the general government. It owns three-quarters of the student loans of the trillion dollars of student loans. That one-time hit budget deficits, after that one-time hit, budget deficits each year will be slightly bigger because of the lost revenue from loan repayments equal to 0.4% of GDP in 2018. It's not a lot. Um, and, uh, I mean, so this is why people are saying, well, you can do this. You can just do it. Just take care of all that student loan debt, and you open up all that money. Now, essentially, student loans, people are paying student loans. You've borrowed money from the government, and you're being taxed for it. It's become a tax. So if you're paying student loans, you're paying taxes to the general government. You're servicing the general government's debt. Critics usually raise two key problems with debt forgiveness. One is about fairness. The other is known as moral hazard. Right? Will write-offs today lead to more reckless borrowing tomorrow? These questions need to be carefully thought through for student loans, as William Foster, a senior credit officer at Moody's and the report's lead author. Who would benefit and who would miss out? What attempts at equal treatment there should be? Any plan would also have to address what the situation would be for the next generation of students with regard to accumulating debt, he says. Sanders and Warren plan to remove moral hazard by making state college tuition free, but they've caught flack on the fairness question. Uh, as I said, I mean, you can go to a community college for free now if you're under a certain amount. Now, if you're not, if you, your income is under a certain amount. If you're not, you have to pay for it, but um, most people that are going to two-year colleges are under that certain amount of money. Uh, we're already subsidizing a large percentage of the population to go to college. And it creates a price floor because they know the money is going to be there, the colleges do, so they're not going to charge less than what they would get in Pell Grants. You might walk away with a little bit of money once you're done uh, getting your Pell so you can buy your books and whatnot. But 
uh, for the most part, it's all going to the tuition. A study by the Urban Institute said that wealthier households held more student loans, so writing them off would be regressive. Pete Buttigieg, another Democratic presidential contender, wants to direct financial support toward poor students, saying there's no reason to subsidize richer ones. Economies can skew against age cohorts as well as income groups. Foster says the idea of debt relief plays into the bigger debate about prospects for young Americans today, job opportunities, the cost of education, income levels, and slower wage gains since the financial crisis. The last Democratic administration also got in a fight over debt forgiveness. Under President Barack Obama, the government took steps to help under, underwater homeowners, but it failed to get a measure allowing judges to reduce the principal due on mortgages, known as cram down through Congress. Democrat-leaning analysts have been arguing about the episode ever since. There were 5 million foreclosures, says Mike Konzel, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. It's a real strain on the Obama presidency's legacy. They had access to tools to be able to combat them. So this is interesting. I mean, this is where we're talking about debt. I mean, again, the elephant in the room is the Fed. The Fed creates all this and uh, with easy credit and easy, I mean, easy borrowing situations. The housing crisis, we're, we're, the government creates a problem, then it comes in to save the to, to create a solution. The solution is don't have the debt to begin with, cut spending, and really try to rein in what we're doing, allowing these things to happen. Uh, but that's, I, I don't, I mean, I see this as a lost cause in many ways. So what do you do from here? And their 2014 book, House of Debt, Economist Antif Mayan and Amir Sofi regarded that the economy would have rebounded faster with more write-downs. Larry Summers, Obama's economic advisor, pushed back when he reviewed it, praising their analysis but, analysis but calling the policy proposals naive. A few years before the financial crisis, two top 2020 contenders, Warren and Joe Biden, took opposite sides in another clash over debt relief. Biden supported a 2005 bill that made it harder to get out of debt by filing for bankruptcy on the grounds it would curb abuses and help ensure cheaper borrowing. Help ensure cheaper borrowing. <laughs> so he's trying to make people borrow more money. Warren, then a Harvard professor who specialized in household finance, attacked it for punishing struggling families. Consul says that Bill reflected a widespread idea that overborrowing was a result of extravagant lifestyle problems. And reality says middle class families were in a much more precarious situation than we realize and relying on debt for the basics. This is exactly right. People are filling gaps that they don't have. Now, I mean, they're buying stuff they don't need, and that comes from the Fed saying you can get easy credit. So we're creating a monster all the time. This all comes back to the central government and the central banking system. You jack up interest rates, and people won't be doing this stuff. They can't afford it, so they're going to have to learn to live with less things. Um, that's going to put a strain on the service economy. It's going to put a strain on manufacturing. It's going to do all these things, which we saw in the 70s, but in the long term, I mean, Volcker's looking at long term, so not short term. So I'm going to wrap. The forgiveness isn't the only big idea out there for reducing the economy's reliance on private debt. Another one is to pay for things like homes or education with instruments that took look a bit more like equity and less like debt. So this is an entire different thing. You're going to get into what's called uh, um, where you have uh, you know, risk and reward financing. Um, so the question is, though, what do we do from here? Is Volcker, I mean, this is where I began this show, can Volcker... Can a Volcker-like response work in 2020 or 2021 or 22? 
it's going to create a, 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 a substantial amount of pain, which is why politicians won't do it. The other side, of course, is to cut spending, which will also create a amount, an amount of pain that the central government doesn't want to do because that would create problems for them in their political re-election. Look at Donald Trump saying we should keep interest rates low. That helps him get re-elected because we've looked at, I mean, when you look at what's happened with corporate debt, it's out of control. I mean, this is all goes back to the Federal Reserve. And Volcker says, I mean, the general government's too far involved in the, in the, in the Federal Reserve now. I mean, policies become politicized. It was going to be because it's the central bank. This is what this is why central banking is so disastrous. The Jeffersonian response to all this, and I want to wrap up with that, is to get rid of this fusion of government and finance, to rein in spending. And it's not necessarily the Austrian response. It's also the Jeffersonian response. You go back and look at the early 19th century and what the Jeffersonians did. They tried to put a wall between banking and finance and government. They tried to put a wall about spending. They tried to, to stop it. In fact, by the Jackson administration, the United States was debt-free. Debt-free. This is the only time that's ever happened in American history because it was a wise and frugal government. That's what, that's what the idea was. There's almost no way we can do that now, and we've gotten to past the point of no return, I think, in terms of spending. So I think the only option, and I, I really believe this now, nobody's, I mean, the, the Austrian response or the Jeffersonian response is not going to work. The only option is write-downs. The only option is repudiation of some debt. And I think even Ron Paul has mentioned that at times. I mean, the only option is really to do it. You, you got, you've got to do something because the debt is going to destroy the American economy. Um, and, you know, or, or, it, the government needs to get out of the bubble business, but it won't because m people like the bubbles. It helps make them money or it creates a situation where they think they're getting something. I mean, so we're, we're not going to see a, a, a anything where bubbles go away. So I think the only, I mean, raising interest rates, not going to happen. If the, if the Fed's tried that here to get off the addiction, the easy credit addiction, and they were excoriated for it, so they dropped rates again. We're not going to see a situation where the Fed can have a Volcker-like response. So all this praise for, for Paul Volcker, it's amazing because essentially what they're doing is saying Paul Volcker saved the economy with a Jeffersonian slash, you can say, Austrian response to the problem. But that, that medicine is probably gone now in modern America. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.